0: May 7, 2019. From Comedy Central's World News Headquarters in New York, this is The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Ears edition.
1: to President Obama, and she's out with a new book about her journey to the West Wing. Valerie Jarrett is joining us, everybody. (laughs) Also, coming up on tonight's show, all the animals are dying, Uber versus New York taxis, and nobody gets to see Trump's taxes. But first, let's catch up on today's headlines. Planet Earth. Unfortunately, after seven billion seasons, it's about to be canceled. There is a dire warning tonight from climate scientists. They
0: say one million of the Earth's eight million plant and animal species are now at imminent risk of extinction. The United Nations report released today in Paris identified how humans are causing extinction at a rate never before seen in human history.
1: Good Lord. One million species are in danger of going extinct. Like, that's such a crazy, there's so many deaths, you know? Even the creators of Game of Thrones would be like, geez guys, pump the brakes. (laughs) Maybe throw in a sex scene or two, come on. (laughs) But this news is, is really terrible news. Unless humans actively cut down on carbon emissions, overfishing and deforestation, a mass extinction is inevitable, which is depressing. It really is. But if we had to find a silver lining, I am excited to see a million species checking off their bucket lists. You know? Polar bears bungee jumping off the Grand Canyon. (laughs) Elephants finally telling their crushes they're in love. And of course, sea turtles finally gathering the courage to meet their birth parents. Aww, (laughs) aww, I found you, Papa. You realize though, at this rate, all the animals on earth are gonna be dead and it's only gonna be us humans left, right? Because the human population keeps growing, the animal population keeps dying. You know what that means? At some point, we're gonna have to decide which people have to act like animals, right? Because we still need to see animals. So like, Seth Rogen, you're a polar bear, it's done. Yeah, Miley Cyrus, you're gonna be a lemur, that's it. And Snoop Dogg, obviously you are a cat. Now, I know a lot of people would think that you would be a dog because of your name, but if you pay attention to a cat's personality, they're all exactly just like Snoop, yeah. Every cat. Seems like it smokes weed and listens to hip-hop all day. They just got that chilled vibe about them. You gonna jump for this treat? They're like, why don't you drop it like it's hot? <laughs> drop it like it's hot? I said, meow, mother <laughs> meow. <laughs> now, <laughs> now before you start mourning all the animals going extinct, the good news is there are some dead animals that are coming back.
2: Wendy's is bringing back its uh, spicy chicken nuggets thanks to Chance the Rapper and Twitter. The rapper tweeted over the weekend, positive affirmations for today. Wendy's will bring back spicy nuggets at some point. Please, please, Lord, let it be today. Wendy's social media team seized on the opportunity saying it would bring them back if their tweet got two million likes. It wasn't long before that happened. Wendy's tweeted Monday morning, this is not a drill, spicy chicken nuggets are coming back.
1: That's right. Thanks to Chance the Rapper, Wendy's is bringing back spicy chicken nuggets. And you know what? It's great to see a celebrity take on a cause that's actually attainable for a change, you know? You've got Bono running around the world trying to end poverty. Chance the Rapper is just like, hey, let's just bring back the number five. I like that, I like that. And as much as I love spicy nuggets, I do think it's a little weird that Wendy's is making it like they're doing us a favor. Yeah, because they, they, we're still gonna buy the nuggets. You realize that, yes? <laughs> like, they're not giving them to us for free, but Wendy's is like, okay, since you asked for it, we'll sell you something. <laughs> like, I, I don't understand why we always have to beg fast food chains to bring back the foods that we like. We're just holding the good items hostage, you know? It's like, we want the mac rib. No, you're gonna have the filet of fish, yeah. And you're gonna like it. Uh, I hope this fish goes extinct. <laughs> Here's a crazy idea, actually. I say this, fast food chains, why don't you just keep the food that we like, yeah? Why not? I know, it's a crazy idea, I know, I know. But we're the customers, so you should just let us choose, all right? We just choose which foods you keep. Except for Burger King. I mean, that's a monarchy, so they make their own rules. Yes. (laughs) And of course, congratulations, Your Majesty, on the royal baby. Well done, well done. (laughs) And finally, in headlines, in the international world of sports, a major controversy is swirling around South African runner Casta Semenya.
2: A two-time Olympic champion will now be forced to medicate to suppress her testosterone levels if she wants to compete in certain events. South African Castor Semenya lost her appeal today against rules from track's governing body designed to decrease naturally high testosterone levels in some female runners. A panel of judges said the rules are discriminatory but necessary to preserve the integrity of female athletics.
1: Okay. As a South African, I might be biased, uh, but this is some bullshit, okay? No, I mean, how's the IAAF gonna force a woman to chemically alter her natural hormones because they say she's too good? It's not like she's doping. She didn't change her body in any way to gain advantage. She just has a natural advantage, which is what happens in all sports. People are like, yeah, but she's hyper androgynous and that's not fair. Yeah, but she didn't plan that. That's who she is. The best athletes, if you think about it, every single, every single one of the best athletes, they're often people who have a unique genetic advantage that gives them an edge, right? Michael Phelps has a body that produces half as much lactic acid as most people, which gives him longer endurance. And when he was tested, sporting officials said he was lucky that his body works that way. That's literally what they said. Yeah, they didn't say like, you gotta change yourself, Michael Phelps. You gotta get tired before the race. <laughs> every elite athlete has some special advantage. Like, if Tanya Harding wasn't born in a trailer park, she wouldn't have known that hitman. Hmm? Every athlete has an advantage. Shaq is so tall, he can put a ball in a hoop without jumping. How is that fair? Huh? How is that fair? Forget basketball, he could be the world's best NHL goalie just by sitting there. Like, by this logic, Shaq should just have, like, in, he should inject himself with Kevin Hart to shrink himself down. Yeah. Cause it's not fair, you're too big. Shag should be like, okay, I'm gonna take this big injection to make myself into a smaller. Mm, all right, everybody, mm, ah, new plan, can't dunk. Gotta pass the ball to that guy. New plan, mm, ah, that's right, baby. All right, let's move on to today's top story. Washington, DC. A few years ago, it was as exciting as a radio show about podcasts. But these days, there's so much news coming out of the nation's capital, the fire hose of news has continued to flow. You might remember that about a month ago, Democrats in Congress demanded President Trump's tax returns from the IRS. But last night, Steve Mnuchin, Treasury Secretary and grown up McLovin,
0: told the Democrats (laughs) they can go to hell. Breaking news tonight. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin has just sent House Democrats a letter refusing their demand to turn over President Trump's tax returns.
2: Treasury Secretary Stephen Mnuchin refusing to hand over President Trump's personal and business tax returns to the House Ways and Means Committee. In a letter to Chairman Richard Neal, Mnuchin writing, he decided Treasury can't give the documents, saying he determined that the committee's request lacks a legitimate legislative purpose.
1: Okay, so in case you're lost, Mnuchin over here is saying that the IRS won't hand over Trump's tax returns because the Democrats have invented a fake reason to see them. But here's the thing. Many legal experts say that the law is on the Democrat side. If they have a reason, they get to demand Trump's tax returns. It doesn't matter if you think the reason is bullshit. That's just how it works. That's how America's laws work a lot of the time. It's the same way a president can declare an emergency at the border just to get his wall. It doesn't have to be a real emergency. Yeah, he just has to say something. He can just be like, folks, these Mexicans, so dangerous, so dangerous, some of them can even come back from the dead into our land. I saw it in a documentary called Coco. Sorry, folks, so dangerous, so dangerous. And it turns out this full grown ventriloquist dummy isn't the only (laughs) Trump official who's in trouble with Congress right now.
2: House Judiciary Chair Jerry Nadler considering contempt of Congress for Attorney General William Barr, scheduling a vote for tomorrow after Barr declined to provide the full, unredacted Mueller report by Monday. The former counsel for the White House, Don McGahn, he also faced a deadline today to turn over documents or to face a contempt of Congress vote.
1: Contempt means going to the courts. And where we've seen that occur in the past, it can take months and months. Now, uh, if we go back in history, Congress actually has an inherent contempt authority. There's a jail in the Congress, in the Capitol. They could send out Capitol police or U.S. Marshals and arrest the attorney general, in theory, uh, and put him in jail. Yeah, that human Muppet is right. (laughs) The House Democrats are on the verge of holding the attorney general in contempt of Congress, which means technically he could get arrested And I know it's extremely unlikely, but man, wouldn't that be exciting? Like, wouldn't it be exciting if this whole thing just ends in a standoff at the White House? The Capitol Police storming the Oval Office, Trump and his people taking a final stand, like Scarface, you know? And then Trump just pulls out Jeff Sessions from a hidden drawer. He's like, say hello to my little friend. Also, am I the only one who didn't know that Congress has a jail? Like, I feel like Trump is making us learn everything about America. It's like a Congress jail. Also sounds like the most boring jail in the world. I bet even the shankings get filibustered. It's like, man, I'm about to stab your ass. Like, I'm sorry, you need a supermajority for that. God damn it, McConnell. So that's the drama that's happening inside the White House right now. But the action uh, of this administration spreads far and wide. Teachers across the country, including here in Arizona, have walked out of classrooms demanding changes such as higher pay, smaller class sizes, and more classroom funding. Education Secretary Betsy DeVos says teachers are walking off the job too often and protests should be done on, quote, adult time, not the student's time. You know, now I can see why Betsy DeVos is the head of education. She's a genius. Yeah, (laughs) that's a good question. Why don't people strike when they're not on the job? it would be so much less disruptive. (laughs) Yeah, get the out of here, man. What does that mean? (laughs) (laughs) If you do it, if you do it during your spare time, it's not a strike, it's just a hobby, okay? (laughs) The whole point of a protest is to make those in power uncomfortable. Civil rights protesters sat at the counters to challenge segregation. It wouldn't have been the same if the black people were like, we're gonna sit at the counters? Nah, man, we're gonna order our food on Seamless. <laughs> yeah. Ding dong. Oh, he's here. Surprise, I'm black. Yeah. <laughs> Change is coming. Change is coming. Oh, yeah. What's that? Oh, no, man, I ordered the mac rib. This is the filet fish. God damn it. <laughs> so just in the last two days, The Treasury Secretary is rejecting a request from Congress. The Attorney General might get his ass locked up. And Betsy DeVos says, teachers need to protest during adult time. Which is a weird phrase, can we be honest, huh? During your adult time? It sounds like she's telling them to protest during sex. (laughs) Like teachers are gonna be in bed at night. Someone's just like, tell me what you want, baby. Tell me what you want. I just wanna be paid a fair wage for educating the children of America. God damn it. You're so sexy. Actually, it's you're so sexy. (laughs) We'll be right back.
0: at PurdueGlobal.edu.
1: Welcome back to the Daily Show. My guest tonight is a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama, a businesswoman, a public servant, and now a New York Times best-selling author. Her new memoir is called Finding My Voice: My Journey to the West Wing and the Path Forward. Please welcome Valerie Jarrett. <laughs>
2: have the best studio audience. I gen- these are the best
1: human beings. Are you kidding me: <laughs> I wish there were awards for audiences. We'd win an Emmy for Best audience. That's what we should get. I think uh, so. How welcome you doing? back to the show. How are you doing?
2: I am great. It's good to be back here. I've been looking forward to it.: I have
1: genuinely um, not known as much as I thought I knew about your life. You know you- you've always That's lived the point. Yeah, you've always lived <laughs> with your life in the public eye, but-, but writing this book, and I guess getting to read it taught me new things about you as a a, a person. For instance, many people may know that you were born in Iran, right? And people may know that your dad was a doctor there, but I didn't know why your dad was a doctor in Iran.
2: Yeah, because he couldn't get a job as a black doctor in the 50s at a major academic institution here in the United States. And he and my mom decided to explore outside of the United States and see if there was a better opportunity and the best opportunity he found was helping to start a hospital in Shiraz, Iran. I was the second baby born in that hospital. They practiced on some other kid first. <laughs> We're not sure exactly what happened to that kid. Uh, but that's what happened. And so in a sense, he took me over the color line uh, with my mom before I was born. And I was born into a world where I lived on a hospital compound from people with, from, with people from all over the world.
1: Right. It feels like that is the beginning and the defining characteristic of your story. Your journey seems to be a journey of overcoming obstacles, finding ways to 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 get a better advantage or a, a better opportunity for yourself as a black woman, and 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 that that has made you who you are today. Do you see your like your life as a journey of just climbing a mountain constantly?
2: Yeah, but it's also a zigzag. And I think I started out playing it safe, practicing law at a big corporate law firm, bored to tears and doing what everybody thought I should do. And Trevor, it wasn't until I started listening to the quiet voice inside of me that I swerved out way outside of my comfort zone and I started working in local government because I wanted to be a part of something bigger than myself, actually. Right. And it felt good. It was terrifying and exhilarating. And I, I really discovered that the adventure is in the swerve. It's in the zigzag, not the straight boring line.
1: That's beautiful, because my little voice doesn't, <laughs> yeah
2: swerved? You no, no, no. swerved big time? No, I've swerved
1: because of life, but, like, my little voice just tells me to eat more cookies. Um, <laughs> let's talk about your career. You go into law, and you... you as you say, you, you, you're not fulfilled, but you're really good at it. And then your, your, your world takes you into public service. And through these journeys, step by step, you then come across a young lady by the name of Michelle Obama.
2: Michelle Robinson. Not even Michelle Obama. Yeah,
1: I only think, I was like, no, she's always been an Obama in my head. No, (laughs) no.
2: Yes. She was a bad ass in her own right. Right.
1: Right? She she really was. That's a a thing a lot of people don't realize is that she was kicking ass in her own world. You hired her. What did you see in her?
2: Oh my gosh. Uh, Maturity beyond her years, intelligence. I mean, she saw her resume sitting on my desk. She never mentioned any of that. She told me her story. And she made herself human. And then she started asking me some really hard questions that I did not have the answers to. Wow. Like, well, what's going to be my responsibilities? And i like, I just got this promotion. I'm trying <laughs> to hire you. Don't you just want to work in the mayor's office? And she's no, 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 actually, I have some questions here. That is phenomenal. I offer her a job on the spot because she was so impressive. And she's like, yeah, I'll get back to you. <laughs> and when she got back to me, she said, oh, we got a problem here. My fiancé doesn't think it's such a good idea. I'm like, well, who's your fiancé? what do we care what he thinks? <laughs> and she said, his name is Barack Obama, and he started his career as a community organizer, and he's a little worried about me going into the mayor's office, a very political environment without yes. any background in it, even though I want to do service. I'm committed to service. She said, would you have dinner with us and talk about it? And I said yes, and that was a really smart idea on my part. You
1: can't... You can't read this book and not think about how many small decisions impacted the White House and America's history forever because your conversation with them in many ways leads to their conversations and their life decisions going forward. You're all on this journey together now. It's yourself and it's the, and it's the Obamas, and you're heading toward the White House. When you get there, because I don't want to spoil those parts of the book. You, you don't really spoil it. I, I want won't. you it's, to read it. It's really book, amazing, right? but when you get to the White House, what I really enjoyed in the book is how you now face challenges within a White House that loves you. And, and you, you have to speak to the president and say, hey, this environment is not the best that it could be for women and women's voices. Like, that, that was a powerful moment for me to read. I was like, oh, you just assume Barack Obama had it perfect, but, but he didn't, and you had to work on correcting that.
2: Well, you start out with an environment, and you don't, haven't built a culture yet. And I think everybody kind of comes to the table with their own baggage, and I had noticed that some of the women's voices were shrinking. And when I mentioned it to him, when he said, well, that's not acceptable because I want everybody to speak up because I will make better decisions. And they're here because I value them. And that's right. what he told them. He invited them all over for dinner. And he said, if you're not speaking up and fighting for your ideas, it's not about you. It's about helping me make the best possible decisions. And that was empowering. You tell a group of women that they need to speak up and that you really care what they have to say. And we also started building relationships with one another. And so we'd go into a meeting, and we had been to dinner the night before, and we cared about each other. And so when you see somebody, there's a huge human element. I think it is so transferable to any work environment, any family environment, actually. You have to take the time to listen to each other, hear each other, and build trust. And over time, one of the comments President Obama made is that we went from having the best players on the field to the best team of that we're all very proud
1: that's really interesting as as, as an idea and I I think that ethos was built in the run-up to the White House that's what makes this journey and this book so interesting is that we're getting to see like the before the before it's really the prologue of how it all began let me ask you this as an advisor and as a friend what do you think Barack Obama had that reinvigorated America so much how do you think he got people out to vote because another election is coming up I don't know if you know this and um,
2: Oh, yeah, I'm counting on it. And, and
1: now we're in a place where people are like, do these current Democrats have the same pull? Can they bring people out in the same way? What do you think it was about Obama that got people going the way he did?
2: I think he was authentic. He spoke directly to people. They felt that he heard them and understood their plight and, and that he was committed to trying to make their life better. Mm-hmm. He never focused a lot on who he was running against but what he was running for. And I think that that's one of the things I've encouraged. The embarrassment of riches that we have in the field today is don't beat each other up. Prove to the American people that they are worthy of your trust. Right. And that you have a, vin- a vision for our country that actually unifies our country and doesn't tear us apart. Because the tearing apart is not working. Have you, have, you, have you endorsed any candidates yet? Not yet. I think it's early. I remind people that at this time in President Obama's first race in 2007, he was down by double digits and everybody thought Hillary Clinton was the invincible nominees. So I think it's important to give space for the, I don't know, every day a new person is announcing. And that's yes, an embarrassment yes. of riches. I I, I'm,
1: I'm announcing right now.
2: I thought that, that's why I came here. I'm, I'm here. Well, if you're running, I might have to make an endorsement. But unless you're in the race, I think I want to wait and see. Having been through a, the kind of right. a marathon of a campaign, it's a test as it should be. I want to see what they're like when they're under pressure. I want to see what they do when they're attacked both fairly and unfairly. I want to see how convincing they are that I should put my future and the future of my daughter and my, you know, grandchildren in mm-hmm. their hands. It's, right? it's, it, yeah, it it's, really It's a is big a, job, right? It is a
1: huge job. It is one of the biggest jobs in the world. And the, the, the candidates on the Democrat side who's looking uh, best right now in, in the numbers is Joe Biden, yeah. um, who was part of the administration that you were advising in. He has been facing criticism from people who say, Joe, uh, you have skeletons in your past. Um, People focusing on Anita Hill, for instance. And Jill Biden recently came out and said, guys, it's time for us to move on. This issue has been buried. Essentially, it's done. How do you think Joe could go about answering people's concerns or responding to what people feel happened with the Anita Hill um, hearing?
2: Look, I think all the candidates are going to are accountable for their past actions, and they have to explain them. And they also have to prove if they have they've evolved. And uh-huh. I think that people are capable of evolving and learning from past experiences. And the magic of the of the campaign trail is that you have to get out there every single day and prove to the people why they should trust you. That's the magic of our democracy. And so all the candidates have that same challenge, and they need to get out there and explain themselves and earn the trust of the American people.
1: Before I let you go, the book tells us where you came from, um, where you got to, but now the future, what does it hold? I mean, once you've worked in the White House, who, who do you advise after that?
2: Well, yeah, I guess myself is who I'm really advising right now. <laughs> and, and I did a kind of a gut check, Trevor. I said, like, what do I care most about? Mm-hmm. I care about gender equity. I care about criminal justice reform and ending gun violence. And I care about civic engagement. And so Mrs. Obama organized uh, When We All Vote, which is a not-for-profit, nonpartisan entity last summer. And I chair that board. And I want to convince everybody out there that you have a stake in this democracy. And the, the most basic step is voting. And then get involved and show up at meetings, run for office yourself, feel as though you own this democracy, because 43% of eligible voters did not vote in the last election. And elections have consequences that we all live with. And so don't abdicate your responsibility and disenfranchise yourself. So that's a big part of the message that you'll be hearing from me over the next few years. And, And fighting to level that playing field so every young kid in our country gets that fair shot.
1: Well, oh, if anyone wants to get to where you are, now they have a manual on how to do it. Thank you there so much for coming to the show. Thank you. Wonderful having Thank you, you again. All. <laughs>
2: Finding
1: my voice is available now. Valerie Jarrett, everybody. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> the Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch the Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.